0: Welcome to Down the Rabbit Hole. This is episode number 42. And starting today, we have a new structure. The show changed a little bit the structure. We're going to start with news. Then we're going to go to the main topic and something very interesting at the end. And as always, with me, Carl Baldwin, which is getting ready to start with the news. And now Down the Rabbit Hole presents you the weekly news related to science, and we start with device, a new device that hooks the heart to make it pump blood.
1: Yeah, it's interesting, actually.
0: Researchers utilize soft robotics to design a silicon device that hogs, you know, grabs the heart, yeah. by contracting when the actuators within it are filled with pressure, pressurized air. Mm. With more than 41 million people affected by heart disease worldwide, a device like this could save innumerable lives and mm. prevent countless others from suffering.
1: And does uh, is it completely self-contained you know, or is it does it have pipes going into it from the outside or
0: I think it's a single device thing that goes like a pocket Oh. you put the heart inside the pocket yeah it's
1: like it's like a yeah I kind of thought of it like an egg cup kind of uh-huh. your, your heart sits in the top there
0: if you search around you can see that those videos yeah. about it uh, simula- simulations and some of the videos of it acting it's very interesting
1: I mean it's kind of like a like a splint for your heart isn't it like a yes it's like a almost like an artificial muscle in a way isn't mm-hmm, it mm-hmm. massaging
0: it yeah it's making really, the movement for you
1: yeah it fascinating pretty good and where has that come from, Dino? Where is, it? is it US or.? Yeah. It's a US development. Mm-hmm. It is fantastic, actually. So, what have we got next? Next. Oh, next. I'm next. Sorry about that, folks. Yeah, the next is, uh, is quite interesting. This is. Um, may- maybe people are aware of the um, X Prize. Um, it's actually a range of prizes for. Setting very challenging kind of uh, targets for achieving certain things. And maybe people remember the Ansari X Prize from a few years ago, which was the first private company to mm-hmm. put a vehicle into low Earth, uh, into a not low Earth orbit, but into kind of the edges of space to recover it and then reuse it within two weeks. Now that was won by um, Scaled Composites and the Virgin Galactic mm-hmm. Spaceship One, right? Mm-hmm. Um, this is a different X Prize. This is the uh, Google Lunar X Prize, and the the top money uh, for the winner is twenty million dollars. There's a second place of five, and a bonus. Prizes of 5 million, which I think gets shared out between uh-huh. people. And the and main objectives. The main objective is for a completely private enterprise to soft land a rover, or at least, uh, well, it needs to be a rover, actually, of mm-hmm. some kind, yes. on the moon's surface, mm-hmm. and for it to then be able to travel uh, at least 500 meters and we have now just arrived at the point where the five final finalists have been selected. Mm-hmm. And they're from a range of countries. One is called um Moon Express, I think is correct, isn't it? Yes. That's a US team. Uh that is a lander. I don't mm-hmm. that that's a lander, so I'm not sure how it travels uh does its five hundred meters thing. But um the other one is uh, Synergy Moon. That is an international team. Uh, that is a rover. And then there is the Japanese um, uh, project, which is called Hakuto, I think is... Uh, Hakuto. Hakuto, sorry, yeah, that's great. Uh, that is a lander rover. Um, I presume the American... Sorry, the um, yeah, the US Moon Express must be a lander rover of some kind. Uh-huh. Then there is a team from Israel... Uh, That's called Team Space IL. Um, That is a nano ship. We don't know what uh, that actually means. Uh Um, And then there's a team from India. That's called Team Indus. That's a lander rover. And basically where they are at the moment is the five finalists have been announced and they have been given the next milestone which is they have to be off-planet by the 31st of December 2017. Yes. So the interesting thing about the rovers, shall we say, is that obviously not only would will these be the first private um, visitors to the moon, uh, but although they are called rovers, they don't all have wheels. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple of them actually are hoppers and I was reading about one of them, I can't remember which one it was now, that's a hopper, and apparently it's going to use 50% of its fuel landing, and then the remaining fuel will be used to do short hops on the surface. And I believe each hop is actually 500 metres. So if they just manage one hop, they will have achieved their their target. Mm -hmm. So... All
0: fascinating stuff. But one of the main objectives is to send high quality, high definition correct. images and the video.
1: Uh, correct. And I believe uh, one or two of them are actually going to be offering opportunities for people to actually uh, guide the rovers on the moon in real time. Wow. Yeah, that'll be cool, right?
0: <laughs> yeah. Let's crash him with the other yeah, one. <laughs> yeah, that's like, like bumper cars. Right?
1: Yes. You can you can imagine all kinds of competitions you could create around yeah. getting an opportunity to do that. So that, yeah, that's the um, bit of bit of solar system exploration stuff.
0: And next news: scientists have found a way to reverse antibiotic resistance.
1: Yeah, which is obviously and this is
0: interesting because now there's a big problem. Uh, where well, f- in which people are not getting cured anymore right. with antibiotics we in the uk they call it the antibiotic apocalypse yes and that's because of resistance and mostly people yeah. out to medicating and creating resistance to well it's to not them. it's
1: not only that it's actually one of the main sources is actually the use of antibiotics in the food chain in the food chain, yeah. So uh-huh. cattle are being given antibiotics, uh, chickens, uh-huh. uh, fish, farmed fish, yes, and that is making its way, has made its way up the food chain, uh-huh. and uh, we're all, even if you've never, ta- I haven't, I haven't taken an antibiotic for, getting on for a hundred years now, no? <laughs> <laughs> and yet I've no doubt I have this antibiotic resistance. Probably uh, because you know I eat food, I eat meat. Uh huh. So,
0: so one group of scientists from Oregon State University found their answer inside a peptide uh, conj- uh, conjugated uh, phosphorodiamidate, Oh wow! Morpholino oligomer, okay. or for short, PPMO molecule. Yeah. They believe that this molecule could uh, combat an enzyme produced by the bacteria by bacteria called. New Delhi metalobeta-lactamase, NDM1 for short, which is responsible for coding resistance along with several other genes. Mm. Since the genes are shared across many different types of bacteria, only one ppmO molecule would be needed to fight the resistance. It would make contact with the antibiotic and restore its ability to fight bacteria that express NDM one. So, what what do you think
1: that means? Is that kind of some kind of genetic treatment,
0: gene it's, therapy? Or I think something? it's a, a bit like that. Some kind Ooh, of gene therapies. It's, mm-hmm.
1: it's not going to be a tablet or a. Uh, interesting. Who knows? Right. Yes. But some time before we'll be seeing that on the shelves, I suspect. Yeah.
0: And. For another
1: news, oh, that's a we have
0: uh, one interesting. You want to take this? Yes, away?
1: obviously, uh, this is very interesting. Um, it's uh, one of our favourite subjects from previous programs to do with augmentation and uh, mm-hmm. future sci fi stuff like uh, uploading consciousness to uh, computers. Um, and <laughs> it's quite. Weird, actually, uh, scientists have taken some bra- dead brain tissue and exposed it to uh, both chemical and electrical probes. And they were able to detect um, patterns, presumably electrical wave patterns, that were similar to what you would get from a living uh, brain tissue. Mm-hmm. And... Um, they had some kind of uh, – they were enhancing the signals with some uh, some technology, uh, but the results suggested that portions of the uh, post-mortem brain, in other words, after clinical death, mm-hmm. uh, appeared to continue to respond with lifelike kind of properties – Mm-hmm. uh which would uh which would kind of raise the question of you know yeah. when are you actually dead <laughs> um, when are you exactly yeah, actually when? dead yeah when and although i'm not entirely sure where they get the uploaded consciousness thing from in this uh reference but it certainly raises questions about uh uh-huh. just when does brain activity cease? Well,
0: it comes from the fact that they would put a tiny chip in the brain. Yeah. And that would carry out these uh, activities and tests that were made on the dead tissue. Yeah. So practically, it would allow you, your brain to keep on working, let's say. Oh, right. Like that would they, that's what they say about, uh, would enhance you your memory capacity and probably up, like uploading your consciousness somehow, your uh,
1: mind. Yeah, uh, that's the bit I'm having trouble with. I can uh-huh. kind of see, anyway, it's obviously a very interesting, um, it's a very interesting area, isn't it? And, uh, mm-hmm. I think we're going to see a lot of activity around this kind of technology in the le- next 20, 30 years. Um, hopefully they will be able to presumably help people mm-hmm. with, um, yeah, kind of genetic uh, disorders or you know, kind of nervous system disorders and things yeah, like this. that's that as will
0: a, be one of the first main applications as a yeah. first
1: application. But obviously, it has echoes of all kinds of sci-fi uh-huh. kind of tech, doesn't it? That yes. we've all seen those movies, right?
0: Okay, so those were our news this week, right? for this week, right? Or this week, yeah. And for our main segment, right now, we have the, a very interesting topic, mm. which we have been calling Mother Earth Extreme Survival. Yeah. So, what do we actually mean with this?
1: Well, I, maybe we should start with um, getting into kind of proportion, uh-huh. um, the habitable part of this planet that this we planet. live on, right? Mm-hmm. Um, our atmosphere is really thin, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, the, the Earth is 12,700 kilometres across. That's about 8,000 miles. Uh, but if you set off from the surface, uh, you run out of breathable air at six miles, which is about mm-hmm. nine kilometres, right? Yes. And the very top of the atmosphere where there is no more weather or where the weather ends is at 15 kilometres, which is 9.3 miles now. That all may seem very uh, large and so on Uh and so forth, but if you actually scale the planet down to be the size of a football, Mm -hmm. so if the planet Earth is the size of a football, the breathable atmosphere, the depth of the breathable atmosphere would be a quarter of a millimetre
0: thick. 0.25 millimetres thick. Which is one... Ten thousandth of an inch. So imagine a zero point two millimeter little thing above a football. Yeah, it's like nothing, right? It's like it's so it's like, thin. It's like, That's our atmosphere in comparison to like, a football size.
1: It's like less than the width of a pin. Yeah? And
0: this is this triggers that some of the title extreme survival. Yeah, because although there's life and we're thriving, let's say humans thrive in this planet. Yeah, it actually means that uh life had to actually adapt to these extreme conditions absolutely absolutely and as we have
1: here there there are uh kind of maximum ranges over which we yeah. as humans can survive and in fact there are hotter and colder places than mm-hmm. we're about to show here but the two um places that uh, are recognised to be the hottest, the hottest and coldest inhabited places uh-huh. on the planet. Now, this is inhabited, right? Yes. So people live here regularly, not mm-hmm. visit or anything like that. So the hottest is in Ethiopia. Wow. And it is a place called Dalol.
0: Dalol. Uh-huh. Dalol.
1: And it has an average or has had an average annual mean temperature from 1960 to 1966, for example, when the last measurements were taken, of uh, average 34.4 degrees centigrade, which is 94 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh-huh. And the average maximum temperature during the same period was 41. Yeah, the daily one.
0: Daily, right? It's 106. That is… 41.1 degrees every day. That is, wow.
1: that is warm, right? And yes. obviously there are other places like Death Valley in the US where uh-huh. I've been, um, which do get hotter, but people don't live, live there. there, right? This is areas where people actually live. They live. There are towns there. Yes. and The coldest. The coldest is interesting, is in the Russian Federation. Uh-huh. Uh, it's a village called... Omyakon, I think it is. Onmyakon. It? On and it's in the Russian Federation uh, along the Indigirka in River. Uh-huh. It has the coldest monthly mean of around uh, minus 50 degrees centigrade, which is minus 58 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh-huh. And the average temperature in January, which is the coldest month, uh-huh. oh, sorry, and the place with the Average temperature in January, uh, with the coldest month, is actually uh, Eureka Uh in Canada, Canada, right? And that has the lowest annual mean temperature of minus, effectively, 20 degrees centigrade, Mm -hmm. uh, which is minus 3.5 Fahrenheit, which begs the question, actually, that Fahrenheit figure, but there you go. Um, So these, these places are clearly either very hot or very cold, But they're not the coldest and they're not the hottest, but they are inhabited permanently, which Mm -hmm. is.
0: makes uh, surviving these environments make it extreme. It's got to be tough. Yes. You've got to think. And this takes us to another interesting thing, which was this that the lowest survivable temperature for a simple life. Yeah, for like uh, single cell cells. How how much would it be? Well, below minus 20 degrees, uh, a single cell organism will dehydrate.
1: If it's done sl- uh, If it's done um, slowly, yes. if the temperature falls slowly, slowly. it will dehydrate, dehydrate into this special state.
0: Which is uh, vitrified, like vitrified, glass-like state. Vitrification. Right? Yes. Uh, so, during this state, they're unable to complete their life yeah. cycle.
1: But the interesting thing about it is that um, if the single-cell organisms are reduced down to this temperature and below it, uh, the any water inside the simple cell uh-huh. actually leaks out through the cell wall and freezes, which leads to this vitrified state yes. where the life processes stop. Stopped completely. But if they're warmed back up again, the uh, process restarts. Mm-hmm. It's not dead
0: like a cryogenic state
1: it is in fact like a cryogenic state it's quite interesting
0: well because of this actually uh has been established that minus 20 degrees Mm. is considered the lowest temperature limit for life life. on earth
1: yeah in terms of single cell single cell and um the process this vitrification process in simple cell cellular life is actually very similar to the kind of thing you do with seeds when you dry them out. When you dry them out, yeah. Right. It's basically water's been removed. And uh, and of course, we all know that dried out seeds can actually uh-huh. fertilize and
0: grow, right? And um, yeah. This at the same time explains why do we freeze food for preserving it.
1: Yeah, that's right. Because
0: yeah. most of the freezers go under minus 20 or... Near minus 20 Towards degrees. minus
1: 20, right? Like minus 18 or whatever, uh-huh. it is right? it's uh-huh. most of them. Um, yeah, so basically at minus 18, minus 20, uh, moulds and bacteria cease to work.
0: They cannot uh, multiply anymore. Yeah, the, their life processes
1: the have stopped. Yeah. Uh, which, of course, is why if you take something out of a freezer and leave it, it will then spoil.
0: That's why they say once you freeze something you cannot really refreeze it again, Don't because it's already... It. You started again the process of uh, right. the bacterias of decomposition.
1: And the five-second rule doesn't apply to that, does it? <laughs> uh, and the interesting thing about the... Um, the interesting thing about uh, unicellular life, or a simple life, like uh, algae, bacteria, and so on, is that the reason kind of why this happens, this vitrification, is because they're simple organisms they're single cells, Uh and they're not in control of the environment that the Uh cell is in, whereas um, larger uh, organisms like animals, insects, trees, you know, plant life, they do have some control of the the fluid environment that the cells Uh are in. Uh And obviously in the case of uh, uh, humans, obviously we have blood and we have all kinds of stuff surrounding the cells. So we uh, have a completely different uh, reaction to cold. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, interestingly, this rule about uh, vitrification uh, has been seen to apply to any single cell that was tested for this dehydration. Yes, there were no exceptions. There were no exceptions. They all responded the same way. But obviously higher life forms like us, more complex life forms, um, is completely different. And that's where we come on to this next kind Which of is
0: section. the extreme surviv- survivability of humans. Yeah. Because uh, many of the boundaries, you know, that we typical humans can survive have been fully established. And there are some uh, well-known rules, the three, the rule of threes. Yeah. And it, it, it says how long we can go uh forego air water and food yeah which is and it's roughly three minutes three days and three weeks yeah respectively each one of them so air three minutes water three days and food three weeks
1: which is quite interesting Uh it's that's a nice guideline i must remember that you have to remember this one yeah for when next time i hold my breath Particularly,
0: you can only stay at least uh, three minutes. (laughs) Yeah,
1: three minutes, and I'm going to stop because I need to eat something Uh at that point. And Uh, we go
0: to temperatures.
1: Yeah, quite interesting, actually. The if you take a human and put them in an extremely humid humid environment, say 140 degrees Fahrenheit, 60 degrees Celsius, but humid they will begin to suffer hypothermia after 10 minutes uh, the interesting uh-huh. thing is um why 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 do they mention that it's extremely humid it's because the more um moisture is in the atmosphere the less the body's able to sweat uh-huh and so it can't if it can't sweat it can't radiate the heat away because obviously sweating gives its like need of evaporation, right? Yeah. So as you sweat, it's actually cooling your body. Uh-huh. Okay? So it's this fact that if you're in a very hot and, and let's face it, 140 is hot.
0: It's a lot, 60 degrees it, Celsius. It is hot. Uh If
1: it is humid, you will not last long without protection at all. Uh, But death by cold is a little harder to define, isn't it?
0: Yeah, because uh, a person usually, uh, (laughs) let's say, in that commentary says expires, (laughs) but it's like... I
1: think we mean die. (laughs)
0: Die. When their body temperature drops to 70 degrees Fahrenheit or 21 degrees Celsius. Yeah. But how long it takes uh, for this to happen, uh, well, it's going to depend on how... Mm, acclimatize uh, the person you are so. you yeah, are used to cold yeah so a person uh, uh, you but, know can start literally to get into a hibernation sets
1: well but it's a myst- it, it is a very rare thing it's a rare this thing gets to happen yeah but just talking about temperatures the thing about extreme cold is that we we have simple technology for that for clothes clothes right? simple right. So as that yeah you can get yourself wrapped up we all know that um obviously people live in uh, extreme cold environments uh and they do perfectly fine because obviously you can conserve heat and so on and so forth but we have no obvious solution for living in a very hot environment do we really no um,
0: more technology, probably. More technology, but what? The humidifiers. But
1: when you're outside. Uh, when, right? when you're outside, just protective. Yeah, all, you, all you can do is stay in the shade or something like it's, yeah. There's not much else you can do. But um, talking about extreme cold um, and this rare... Um, uh, condition, situation, situation. Where, where there appears to be some kind of hibernation process in 2006 um, a 35 year old man was rescued from a a mountainside in japan 24 days after going missing and he seemed to have survived by going into a state of what appeared to be suspended animation uh-huh. his, his organs had shut down his body temperature had dropped to 71 degrees, which is right on the limit of of what was uh, doable. And his metabolism apparently had slowed to almost nothing. And yet they warmed him up Mm -hmm. and he actually made a full recovery. And there has been some research at um, (coughs) a university in Seattle Mm-hmm. By a biologist, a cell biologist called Mark Roth, and another guy called Fred Hutchinson, and obviously this has been kind of it's kind of not well understood how this happens. Uh-huh. It's very rare. Yes. People who find themselves in these situations usually come out like a you know a frozen dinner, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so this is very rare that somebody survives. But uh, these scientists have been doing some research at the cellular level, and they believe that the clue is in a gaseous compound called hydrogen sulfide, which they think may be the key to uh, not only hibernation in certain animals, but potentially in humans. In humans, yeah. And in a uh, watershed experiment back in 2005, they actually were able to induce hibernation in a mouse Mm -hmm. by having them inhale uh, doses of hydrogen sulfide gas. And basically, the chemical uh, hydrogen sulfide molecule bound to cells and replaced the oxygen and effectively shut down all the the metabolic processes of of the mouse. And it reduced their temperature. And yet, hours later, when the hydrogen sulfide gas was replaced with air... The mice recovered without any detrimental effects.
0: Mm-hmm. Interesting and for preservation.
1: Exactly, and and exactly, and mice are obviously used as a model for humans in many circumstances. Um, but
0: obviously, you know that there was a, a statue, right, uh-huh. raised in memory of all the mice that have died for scientific <laughs> studies.
1: Yeah, and where is that, Dina? Do you know? I don't remember right now. <laughs> No, we'll have to look that up. I,
0: I read that some days ago. I don't remember right now exactly where it would.
1: Well, anyway, these uh, these researchers think that there may be a latent ability in all mammals, and of course that includes humans, mm-hmm. to actually do this, and that maybe we have this ability, but we don't know
0: how to trigger it. And, and it has been a, in us since three point five billion years ago. Exa-
1: yes, what they're saying is that this this uh, um, state state this ability to hibernate has been with us since literally the beginning. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Three and a half billion years ago, as you say, around that. And that, um, interestingly, if you take it, obviously this is difficult to investigate in humans because who's going to volunteer, <laughs> right? Uh, but. Uh, If you give a human hydrogen sulfide, they suffer what's called a knockdown effect, which is basically you just lose consciousness. uh, Like almost immediately. And um, if you continue that, uh, you you will die. But if you lose consciousness by inhaling um, hydrogen sulfide, uh, if you are then given oxygen Mm or air, you will actually recover uh, straight away. And these scientists think that not only does this hydrogen sulfide molecule play some role in all mammals, including us, uh, the problem is they don't actually understand yet exactly how it works. So, um, mm-hmm. so what they're saying is that um, they think that we may have an ability to um, make certain chemical reactions work that are kind of a leftover baggage from eons ago uh, and Mm -hmm. and this
0: hydrogen sulfide may be the trigger well Um, if we talk about uh, we have talked about this in another show panspermia we did actually this uh, could be something like that you know you get uh some life into this state, travels mm. in comments or something, goes to an uh, to a planet or to an yeah. environment that yeah. takes them out of it, boom. Yeah, well, again,
1: thinking about cellular life, mm-hmm. if it goes into this vitriated yeah, exactly. state and then gets warmed up and way off you go, right? Yeah, you, can, um, you have the same soup. Yeah, primordial <laughs> so soup, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, Yes, and obviously in kind of science fiction and all this stuff we talk about, it's very common kind of uh, trope about travelling long distances and time periods to planets uh-huh. and um, going into some kind of suspended animation thing. And there may be clues here in this science as to how maybe that could be achieved ultimately. Yeah. So um, that is kind of... Uh, one extreme of Uh what can happen um, in terms of uh, our reactions to temperatures Uh, but there is another interesting one which is to do with sleep and our need for sleep Mm -hmm. and whether you'd just like to yes uh,
0: well it's about sleep deprivation yeah and it's known that we humans need sleep to recover and get our body functions to continue working properly yeah And in some cases, Air Force pilots have been uh, forced and they have been known to become delirious after three or four days of sleep deprivation. Well, who wouldn't
1: be, right?
0: The longest that anyone has voluntarily stayed awake before, you know, just crashing completely is 264 hours. Hours, which yeah. is 11 days. That's
1: a long time.
0: And the record was set by a 17-year-old, <laughs> Randy Garner, and he did it for a high school that science is actually project. His,
1: that is his name, not an occupation.
0: Exactly, it. and it's 1965. 1965? Yes. So, yeah. before falling asleep on day 11, he was essentially a vegetable <laughs> with its eye open.
1: I love that finish. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, lighter. I have experimented something like this when after uh, almost 3 days of non-sleep constant. Right. Uh, zero zero mm-hmm. uh my mouth started to feel um uh like re- totally on relaxation my tongue I was not able to move it. You couldn't move it. To not to talk. I couldn't talk. It was like woof, woof, woof. And until that moment, uh, in fact, a friend of mine, we were working in a big project. We were actually abroad. We were actually in Las Vegas, I think it was. Right. And he was about to just fall to the ground, standing, sleeping, standing. Wow. We were waiting for some things and events to finish. Yeah. It was the last, let's say, three hours of everything. And we, both of us actually just exhausted. You know, mm-hmm. Yeah, we had to go and yeah. each one went to our rooms and crushed and we slept like, I don't know, like 16 hours. Something wow. Like
1: I mean, I, the only occasion I can remember that is kind of similar is that, uh, I don't know, maybe 15 or so years ago, I was, again, like you, working on a deadline for something, and I stayed awake for about 36 hours, and I actually started hallucinating.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: And I was seeing things out of the corner of my yeah. eyes. Uh-huh. And, it, and getting like... Flashing stuff and weird shapes. Yeah,
0: in that. fact, for a moment, I noticed that I was with the mouse, yeah. you know, my hand in the mouse, watching the screen. Yeah. And in fact, I wasn't doing anything. Just staring, right? No, my ma- my, ma- my hand was still moving because I had that thing in my own mind that I had to do something. It was moving. But my, my hand just kept on moving and clicking around the screen erratically without actually really being something... Uh, you weren't aware of it. I was not you? aware of exactly what I was doing. <laughs>
1: So I think the lesson here is... Never do that. not
0: a good <laughs> yes. And if you're going to do it, do it while you're young. <laughs> <laughs> yes, because I don't think I won't be able to do that. I, I, when I did that, around. I was something around 23, 24 years yeah, old. 24, I, I think it was.
1: I was in my 30s, I think. And Anyway.
0: Next X- one, extremophiles. Extremophiles. Now, we have talked about that
1: before. We have talked about it before. So what are extremophiles?
0: Well, are organisms that have been discovered not only on Earth, well, on Earth, basically, actually, <laughs> first, because we don't know any other planet. Also, that's another program. Yes, that surviving <laughs> environments that, you know, we first didn't think that it there would... could be life. Yeah. yeah. So, we can count on these uh, environments, something like heat, highly acidic environments, yeah. extreme pressure, yeah. extreme cold. Mm-hmm. And, actually, different of those organisms have below varying ways of adapting to these environments. Yeah. But most scientists can agree that this is uh, unlikely that life on Earth originated under such extremes.
1: Hmm. But there are people who argue that point, obviously. Yes, of course. So, the, on the extreme heat side, you have your ex- uh, thermophiles, as thermophiles. they're called. Thermophiles. And these have been uh, first detected in the 60s in Hot Springs in Yellowstone uh-huh. National Park. Um, and... Um later they were detected around hydrothermal vents in uh, the deep ocean. And these were in high-pressure water where the water, of course, doesn't boil at 100 degrees centigrade because it's under pressure. It boils at 340 degrees <laughs> yeah. centigrade, which is really hot. High, yeah. And uh, researchers were absolutely stunned to see that there were actually creatures living um, not only with there bacteria, but centimetres away from where the water was a little bit cooler, there was a complete ecosystem living off the bacteria. There were kind of adapted clams and these tube worms and other species, and yet these um, organisms were not sustained by uh-huh. photosynthesis, the sun, you know, energy from the sun. But from actually um, from the energy and carbon dioxide dissolved in the in the vents. in the water that mm. was coming out of the vents, so uh-huh. just a completely
0: unbelievable. Anyway, and the opposite is extremely cold. Yeah, what about which are that? called the psychrophiles.
1: Uh, yes, I didn't know that.
0: And uh, we're talking mostly about deep ocean water, mm. and the fact that it's constantly around. 2 degrees. Yeah. But because of the salt content in colder areas, the water in the ocean can reach us up to minus 12 degrees without freezing. Without freezing, yeah. So, these are uh, very extreme cold temperatures for something to survive. Mm. And those psychophiles are known to survive at these low temperatures. And different species have come up with different ways to survive also cold. Uh, Some have developed uh, substances, like uh, glycerol antifreeze. Or, or antifreeze proteins, yeah. which lower the freezing point of, uh, of water by several degrees. It's quite interesting, isn't it? And, well, the main danger of living uh, organisms uh, in these uh, weather environments mm. or in these environments uh, of freezing is the damage caused by the ice crystals yeah. as the water uh, is freezing and expands.
1: In the cells. Yes. Yeah.
0: So, so species like uh, of frogs and turtles actually have proteins that facilitate the freezing of body uh, liquids.
1: Yeah, like a chain reaction.
0: Exactly. Right? So if the animal body liquid begins to freeze, a chain, reaction is, a chain reaction is started. And it goes... And completely. Yeah. Freeze rapidly. So this prevents the formation of ice crystals large enough to do absolutely any kind of damage. Mm. And many other type of uh, microorganisms can actually survive uh, freezing and thawing as long as the problem of ice crystals is avoided. So this is like flash freezing, right? Uh huh. And of course,
1: is the uh, kind of concept behind of the, preservation yeah. of human uh-huh. heads and bodies and all this cryogenic thing. stuff, Cryostat stuff, stuff. Right? Uh huh. Uh huh. So yeah, that's we've got a kind of a book and a movie that we'd like to suggest. Yes. Shall I do the book? Do the book. Uh, the book uh, is called Memory of Water by Emmy Iteranta, I think it is. Uh-huh. And it's set sounds in like the Finnish. F- sounds Finnish, doesn't it? It's set in the future, and it's about a young woman training to become a tea master. Tea master. Water is very scarce due to climate change, and a dystopian society has evolved because of these influences on the environment. So that's our recommended book. And we have a movie, right? Yeah, the movie. Which which I have seen.
0: I have not seen it. Oh, it's a brilliant movie. Really? Mm. It's called Snowpiercer Mm. from 2013. Bong Jung-ho, the director, Mm. and an attempt of using geological engineering to address the climate change goes horribly off the rails, throwing the world into an ice age instead. After establishing that setting, No one in Snowpiercer cares all that much about the environment outside their train. That's kind of understandable with all this chaos, and you will maybe... So just to give you
1: a slight background to that, just a minute, which is that Snowpiercer is a train, and it's basically on a track that essentially goes all around the globe, Uh and basically it's a very clever premise, which is the train, all the carriages are specially Uh adapted for... Because it's freezing, and it's like all the layers of society are on the train. So
0: you have to find your way to so from the, the back
1: to the front. Correct, and as you go through the carriages, you have to negotiate all the different layers of, and all the uh-huh. all the rich people and the top people are at the front
0: near the engine, <laughs> and,
1: and the driver is like God. Right? Uh huh. Really fascinating film actually. Okay, we we'll, yeah. we'll check it out. Yeah. Yeah, check it yeah. Out. yeah,
0: highly recommended that. Yes. Well, with this we finish our main segment and we continue with the section and finally. Yeah. And finally, a
1: few interesting or quirky stories that we've come across from around the world mm-hmm. and uh, I don't know whether Raffi, you'd like to start with this first one. It's quite uh, yes.
0: strange. And we're talking about plastic eggs. Mm. So Easter has come early to German North Sea Island of uh, Land... <coughs> oh, my God. Landjug. <laughs> Landjug. 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 <laughs> yeah. A flute of uh, plastic eggs containing yeah. tiny toys have been swept ashore after a fierce storm to the delight of the island's uh, children yeah. residence. Yeah the brightly colored plastic eggs contain instructions in the Cyrillic alphabet <laughs> saying face away
1: from enemy or something. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Appear to have come from a container lost by a cargo ship round for, uh, for the German port of Birmingham. Yeah. A mm. similar event has been occurring uh, on a southern beach in England where Lego parts uh, have been washing ashore regularly for years. Mm. Again, these are thought to be coming from a container of Lego that fell off a cargo ship in the English Channel a number of years ago.
1: Yeah, and interestingly, I've seen pictures of the British beach. Uh-huh. I mean, this this German beach seems to be covered with literally hundreds of thousands yes. of plastic eggs, doesn't
0: it? This Which, kind of a kinder egg. Yeah, like egg. a kinder egg, that's what yeah. they
1: look like, right? But the Russian version, so they probably have hand grenades in them and <laughs> stuff like that, you know. But um, the ones on the British beach... Um, apparently, they there are certain items uh-huh. that are more prized than others, and apparently, um, obviously, you know, having uh, children, that uh-huh. uh, Lego has all kinds of yeah. fancy things, and, and on the British speech, the most treasured find is a black octopus Lego. Uh huh. So there's this Lego piece that's apparently an o- octopus. And they are the most prized thing you can find on this beach. So there's actually, it's now a
0: thing, right? Well, you know that actually there's people that go around on, on the beaches and go with metal detectors and yeah. always try to see what the sea brings on.
1: Of course. I mean, yeah. yes, I used to design metal detectors, so uh-huh. don't set me off. So <laughs> shall I do the next one? Let's do the next one. Now, this is clearly one for all you uh, germaphobes out there. Uh, this is um, a company in Japan. Uh, it's actually NTT Docomo, uh, which is uh, Japan's largest operator. And they have fitted uh, 86, strange number, yeah. but 86 toilet cubicles in an airport's arrival terminal with little mini dispensers of toilet paper, paper for smartphones
0: so you can clean your smartphone yeah so
1: while you're contemplating you know <laughs> the future your yeah. promotion prospects
0: thinking about the future yeah do you
1: really want to go home to the wife when is the mother-in-law coming blah 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 while you're sat there with your trousers around your ankles you can actually pull off some of this paper and polish your phone yeah and not only that the phone has friendly, adv- sorry, the paper has friendly advice on it about how to access various Wi-Fi services while you're um, in the airport. Maybe it, has the, maybe it has the password on there. I don't know. Probably. I, don't it's, know. I think it's quite interesting, and uh, and I don't know whether it will catch on, but um, well, I don't know what to say, really. it's uh, uh, It is quite bizarre. That is in Japan's in Japan. Ner- Narita International Airport. Uh-huh. And if you want to experience this, you have to get there before March 2017. Okay. Because they're going to, I don't know what, they're going to run out, I think. (laughs) I mean, if I saw one, I would just remove the roll and sell it on eBay, to be quite honest.
0: That's an interesting idea. I
1: mean, it's going to happen, right?
0: Uh And Mm -hmm. if you got an idea right now from us and just sell it, share the profit at least, Please, you know, donate a little to us.
1: I mean, these, that's a collectible,
0: right? That's a collectible. It is.
1: Mm-hmm. Anyway, <laughs> what about the last one?
0: And the last one. Police break into a frozen car to rescue an, el- an elderly woman, but it's not exactly what they were expecting. No, apparently not. So the police in the city of Hudson, New York, responded to a call on Friday morning from a concerned member uh, of the public who believed... She'd seen an elderly woman frozen to death yeah. in a parked
1: car. A granical,
0: yes. Mm. But the officers were on the scene in minutes and saw what and indeed appeared to be a woman of advanced years sat in the passenger seat of the uh, parked uh, Subaru, mm-hmm. wearing an oxygen mask. She was not moving and wasn't responsive. Said
1: uh, that is not entirely unusual in old people, of course. <laughs> yeah. Great.
0: It was bitterly cold, around eight degrees Fahrenheit, and the car had snow cover indicating it may have been parked there overnight. Mm. So, however, they soon discovered there was nothing to worry about, but not before they were able to actually open the car. Yeah, they broke into it, right? They broke into it. So the surgeon uh, from the police department broke the rear passenger window and opened the door to discover (laughs) it was an extremely realistic life-size mannequin. It was a mannequin. <laughs> the owner of the car was a sales manager for a company that produces medical training aids. Yeah. And the mannequin was used as a device for teaching CPR. Yeah. Brilliant. And probably it was too cold and he left it in the vehicle. <laughs> to think- go out of home, to go home, just left it there. It went fast inside. You think he
1: put it in the trunk or something? who knows yeah. maybe
0: he was in a hurry well, possibly yes yeah it could be so the guy came down and you know he was concerned because his window yeah. was broken <laughs> <laughs> but you know the police was also pretty upset they were for being put in the situation where they were in a rush and because it looked very real right possible dangerous situation yeah
1: yeah, that is quite funny, actually.
0: So in the end, nobody knows if it was a joke or not. Yeah, what is the case of the mannequin?
1: I, I, you <laughs> kind of, you kind of suspect he may have done it on purpose, don't you think? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, surely, if you were if you were transporting something like that, minimally, you'd light on the back seat. Why would you sit it in the front seat <laughs> with a seatbelt on? I mean, come on. <laughs>
0: Well, I think it would be exactly as weird if you suddenly go with a mannequin like this and put it in the trunk. Okay. If somebody sees well, you, maybe cause the same alert as... Maybe it would be better if you rolled
1: it up in a carpet first. <laughs> put it over your shoulder. <laughs>
0: <Clunk>. <laughs> anyway, so that's that's the and finally for this one, yes. right? And this last section, remember, the and finally it's going to be dedicated for interesting facts share also your comments yeah so you share your comments with us and we're going to read them here in this section your contributions we're going to have probably maybe some how-tos yeah Uh definitely recommend some stuff absolutely we may even recommend another
1: one of our programs mm-hmm. next week's program or something yeah anyway okay there we go